what I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Adele Anderson is an English Olivier Award-nominated singer and actress, best known as one-third of the cabaret group Fascinating Aida. She's appeared on TV, film and radio and contributed to the songs of several hit musicals and directed shows herself. Most importantly, she's a patron of Humanist UK. Adele, thank you for joining us on What I Believe. Thank you for asking me, Andrew. Lots of people that I've chatted to so far have wanted to start, and it's made sense to start with their childhood and upbringing, and of course that makes sense because that's when lots of people's beliefs are, are laid down. So I thought we might start there because you were practically brought up in cathedrals, I believe. Yes, uh, religion to me has always meant um, bells and whistles, really, and uh, uh, not exactly incense because they don't do that in uh, at high Anglicanism. But uh, yes, I, w- I became a cathedral chorister when I was uh, eight years old. I went away to boarding school. And um, I rose through the ranks, actually, to become head chorister, the, the youngest and longest reigning bishop's chorister at a certain cathedral in Yorkshire. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, You must be the only patron of Humanist UK to have achieved that, that <laughs> rank. Probably, I don't know. But uh, it was uh, it was never about the religion to me. Obviously, we had to do... Uh, I was... So on Sunday, I was doing three services a day. I was singing religious texts, but it was really all about the music for me and getting to dress up in a nice long cassock. And uh, particularly when I was a bishop's chorister, all eyes on me as I held the bishop's staff and led him in, down the nave uh, to, to, to the bishop's throne. And um, this was always what appealed to me. If I ever had to go to an ordinary church, a parish church, and uh, there was rather feeble singing going on from members of the congregation. That didn't appeal to me at all. It, it had to be the real thing or nothing at all. And I remember, obviously, we had religious instruction. And I even got confirmed because that's what you did. You, you know, that's what you did. But I don't think I ever really believed in God even then. But it, it sort of came with the job. So I went along with it. What did music do for you? Why, why was it, do you think, at that early age that you were attracted to, to music? Was it music or was it performance? Both, really. Well, it wasn't really up to me. Uh, I was a product of my father's ambition because I had two very brilliant cousins um, from my aunt on my father's side who had gone to the same school and uh, highly achieved. Then they'd gone on to the same public school that I subsequently went to, and then they went on to Cambridge and got double firsts. And this is what I was supposed to do. So it wasn't really up to me. I My father enrolled me in the local choir when I was six. Um, and it was, you know, it was just something nice to do on Sundays. And I discovered I did have a nice voice, and I did like it when people complimented me on my singing. Once I got to boarding school and got down to the serious business of learning music, it was a wonderful language to learn. Uh, 
I wouldn't say that I'm a I'm a brilliant musician because I don't really play any instruments. I, I proved to be rather bad at that. But the actual singing, there's something wonderful when you hear it in your own head. And I and I um, I particularly love choral singing as well. Unfortunately, so much of it is religious. <laughs> so I tend to find if I want if I want to listen to beautiful. Rec- uh, uh, recordings. I have to do it in a different language. So the beautiful Russian choir, Orthodox choirs with those basses. Mm, what an interesting thing! Who, yeah. All the way down there, and um, you know, if it's if it's in Romanian, if it's in Greek, uh, uh, that's fine. I'll go with that, or even in Latin because I don't, I can't remember any of my Latin. But if it's actually in English, I do find it rather difficult now. And also, I, um, I, I <laughs> so because people, so many people know. I'm a humanist. I remember going with my my colleague who who is Catholic. Uh, we went to a funeral, and I didn't say I wouldn't say the prayers, but I did sing the hymns. And she said, "Well, that's very hypocritical of you, isn't it? You're you're still you're praising <laughs> God in the hymns." I said, "Listen, we're at a funeral. There are very few people who know how to sing here, and we know how to sing. So I'm just doing everybody a favor. <laughs> I'm just you know leading them along. And of course, I still remember." was still in my dna somewhere but uh, yes it was really about the performance and particularly as as head chorister and i remember um there was another boy joined late in the choir and he looked very much like me of course i couldn't see it at all but apparently he did and um we both used to sing solos he had a very different voice from mine his was more like a uh a female soprano mine was very much a pure treble and People, if they, if um, people saw members of the congregation saw me walking in the cloisters, if I was on my way to the to the bishop's palace or something, they would compliment me on a solo that he had sung, and it used to drive me demented. I didn't want to be, <laughs> I didn't want to be confused with anybody else. I just wanted to be me, um, and it, and it was a great time from that point of view because you know we made we made uh, LPs as they were then. We uh, we went on the television. And it was considered to oh, be a really? very, yes, it was considered to be a very good choir back then. So yes, I loved all of that. What was it about performance? What is it about performance? I mean, you still perform. Obviously, that's your mm. um, that's your life's work, really. Performance. What is it about performance that you enjoy or value? Well, to, to be honest, is I it just it. the boost, the endorphin boost of being up there in front of those people who are adoring you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's got to be a little bit more than that. But to be honest, I can't do anything else. I'm absolutely terrible at anything else. My, my colleagues... <laughs> that's what everyone says. I've noticed that's what everyone says when you ask them, why do they do this wonderful oh, no. thing that they do so well? No, and I mean, it's the only thing I can do. But my, there's more to it than that. <laughs> my colleagues in Fascinating Aida, they're, they're marvellous cooks. Uh, you know, they're marvellous gardeners. They can do all sorts of other things and they play musical instruments. All I can do is sing, really. Um, yes, it is. Uh, I'm, I think I'm basically a narcissist by... Uh, nature but I think that's also partly uh, because when I was growing up I was very much uh, centered on myself because I was in as far as I was concerned the wrong gender and I did a lot of things you know thinking so everything was all about me 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 and it took me a very long time actually to get out of that phase you know that phrase it's not all about you Adele really was made for me (laughs) and so um, I think yes having having um, people like what I do. I've, I've achieved a certain level of fame and it's, it's just enough for me. You know, I, can, I can go to the supermarket and nobody recognises me. And in fact, I meet people who, uh, 
if I if I meet people who know Fascinating Ida, then I'm very famous. If they've never heard of Fascinating Ida, they, I'm not famous at all. So it just sort of goes like that. And uh, it's it's I went through ten years where I didn't perform at all um, because I was going through my transition period at the time, and I had to have a regular job. That was part. That was part of the. Uh, that was part of the deal with the with the hospital. So for five years, and was I, that very difficult to be doing something else that you well didn't want to be doing really? Yes, but then I saw the end goal that uh, I, if I didn't do it, I wasn't going to. I wasn't going to get the cherry on the top of the cake, which was you know to actually have all the surgery that I wanted. So yes, for five years I worked. I toiled away as a civil servant. And then I went back to college for a year and did a d- diploma for personal assistance. Then I was a secretary for four years. So I didn't actually get started in the business till I was 30. Um, but in those intervening years, if I went to a party, I would always find an excuse to get up and sing. Uh, and uh, I would tell people, you know, yes, I may be a civil servant now, but uh, actually I'm really an actress until a friend of mine I'd been to university with, I remember saying this to him when I was about 26, he said, you know what? He said, you've got to stop saying that now because when you're uh, young and you're just out of university, of course, you uh, you have all these hopes and dreams and you can say, yes, I'm, go- you know, I'm going to be uh, an actor or I'm going to be an airline pilot or everything. But if after a few years you're actually um, working as a civil servant, that's what you are. You're a civil servant now, Adele, and you just you just have to get used to it. I said, no, 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 it's not like that at all. And I always had it in my head that somehow I would get there in the end. I just had to. I just had to mark time while I got all this other business out of the way. And actually, in the end, it served me well, really, because by the time I did start performing, my identity was fully established, and I really knew who I was and and how to deal with with things. You said um, you spoke a little bit a, a little moment ago when I asked about the the value of music and so on about the enjoyment of it in your own head. But I wondered if you had ideas about what the value of music is, you know, more generally for others and for society. Because it's we've we've had a lot of philosophers and scientists and so on on this podcast so far, but we haven't had uh, I don't think any. I think you're the first, um, uh, you know, performing musicians. Well, Tim Minchin, but of course he yes. he's. Uh, He's a polymath there, the lyrics. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. that's true as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but, but this is so. This is sometimes something that's missing from accounts of of, of humanistic particulars, beliefs, and values. Um, you obviously think that music is an important dimension of life, all life, everyone's life, not just yours. Absolutely, yes, and and, and all types of music. You know, I I listen to classical music, but uh, I've rather given up on pop music now because. Because it, the voices are so processed, I don't really know what I'm he- hearing anymore. I like to hear a proper voice. So, you know, I'll listen to classical, uh, I'll listen to orchestras, I'll listen to opera. But I do particularly love music from other countries. I, um, uh, the, 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 the Bulgarian uh, women's choir is fantastic. As I said, the Russian Orthodox choir, the Mongolian throat singers, who I was lucky enough to see and hear at the Edinburgh Festival where they do this tremendous sort of growling in their throat with these whistles over the top uh it's extraordinary and I I think I yes I can't really explain of course it has the power to move it can reduce you to tears music 
it can all it can also be used as a form of torture, as we know. You know, people are stuck in cells with the lights on, and they play yes, l- yeah. very very loud rock music until they they uh, crack. But it really, you know, if you listen to Goretzky's uh, Symphony of Sorrowful Songs, it's just heartbreaking, all of it, and um, and. Of course, it's all to do with mathematics. As when, if you listen to Philip Glass, you'll, that's all about mathematics, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> well, that's yeah, that's a, that's a different thing. <laughs> so, no, yes, it well, does. Well, it does move you. Yeah, and and actually, it, it moves me more. It's weird because I am a lyricist, but I don't often don't really listen to the words when I'm listening to the music. For instance, I don't know all the words to a single song of ABBA, but I actually love ABBA's songs. You know what I mean? I never, uh, unless I actually sit down and study a song and have to learn the lyrics because I'm going to sing it, it's just sort of la 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 to me. But the actual music itself uh, is the thing that works for me. You mentioned a moment ago um, the the difficulties that you went through at the point when you were uh, in your own transition mm. um, from male to female. And um, I think we should talk about that a bit because um, it's obviously an extremely important part of anyone's life and i think it must have an effect on your beliefs um i mean there are many people walking around um who've never had to give any a moment's thought you know to this to to questions of sex and gender and so on Um, and so you having had by circumstance to to think about these things i think it must have generated opinions and beliefs um about this topic and so we'll come on to that but i wonder if you first just say a little bit about your own experience so that we've got the context yes well I felt really that um if there was a god he dealt me a very bad hand and I didn't quite understand why that should be if he was supposed to be a loving god that that he he was condemning me to a to a life in a in a body that I really you know I didn't recognize as mine I I can't really explain what it's like to be to grow up trans it's it's as if I were living in France or any other country where you don't speak the language. You look the same. People assume you're the same because you look like them. But when they speak to you, it's it's all gobbledygook because it, you you can't relate to any of it. And that is what I found so difficult. And I know that, um, I mean, I drove my parents demented when I was young because I I used to suffer terribly from temper tantrums I was always crying I was always shrieking because because I was just so frustrated with uh, things obviously when I went to away to school that kind of stuff there wasn't you know there wasn't time and and that's a weird thing actually going to boarding school of course I was in an all-male environment and so there weren't there weren't any there wasn't anything to relate relate to there wouldn't be any possibility of even uh, uh voicing such an opinion there so i just had to kind of knuckle down really and get on with it so i think i suppressed it i knew when i was three i told my uh parents when i finish being a boy i'm going to be a lady and um when my father said that wasn't possible i i was very distressed um and i sort of clung to that until i went away to boarding school and then i just had to be a boy and uh, and then puberty came, and that was threw up all sorts of other issues. Uh, and then 
eventually when I eventually was that a difficult time I mean if you say it threw up issues was that a difficult time well what I'm no what I mean is that you know suddenly your body is changing and it wasn't and it I mean in a way that wasn't distressing to me because I hadn't really thought about being trans for a while and so I just thought oh well this is happening and then of course I'm to be blunt, you know, with puberty comes sexual pleasure, and uh, and that that can be <laughs> that that can be a great comfort uh, if you're if you're feeling desperate. And so um, so I sort of went with that. Then weirdly, at the the I think the turning point was when I was uh, oh I had a, I had a terrible experience when I was fifteen. I. Um, my parents did split up when I was very young and we lived with my father and I had to, uh, I was visiting my birth mother and she immediately recognized that I was not as other boys, as they say. And, um, she said, uh, you fancy men, don't you? And I, I said, yes. And she said, well, what are you going to do about it? And I said, well, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I was, I think, fourteen, about to turn fifteen. You know, I, I said, well, I don't, don't know, really. Perhaps it's just a phase I'm going through. Well, she said, well, I'm not, I'm not having a pervert living under my roof. So she put me on the first train back home the next day, and I, I said, well, please don't tell my father he'll go ballistic. And she said, well, I, she was prevaricating, and I said. I got a Bible, actually. I got a Bible. I said, swear on this Bible that you won't tell, tell him. And so she didn't. She contacted a firm of solicitors in London and they wrote to him and told him. So that's how much oh, good that gosh. Bible. That... There's always an opt-out even when you swear on the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And my father went absolutely ballistic, as I knew he would, uh, pulled me out of school, was going to kick me out the house because the school leaving age was 15 then. So he wanted me to leave and become an estate agent of all things. And uh, my wonderful stepmother, of whom I would like to speak more, said that um, under no some circumstances was this to happen. And she she stood up to him. She said, I must finish my education. So I went to the local technical college, which was a huge shock after being cosseted in uh, from the age of eight to the age of 15, uh, you know, in private education, suddenly to be going going to the local college in Yeovil um, was was a huge shock. But actually, it was really the best thing that could have happened because I was a terrible snob back in the day. But that was because my father... Oh, really? Oh, yes. Oh, huge, huge snob. Because um, I didn't know any better. My father was a huge snob. He he um, When he ma- married my st- stepmother, we became double-barreled. We had a double-barreled name. I had the longest name in the school. <laughs> And was a source of obviously is that wasn't... why he wanted you to join the cathedral choir and everything? Oh yes, oh he loved both. Oh, I see. It was for about it. Yeah. yeah. And then once I once I veered off the path, that was it. He he wanted nothing more to do with me really, because I'd 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 uh, I'd let him down. I wasn't going. He wouldn't be able to talk about me anymore. And even weirdly, even when I became a member of Fascinating Aida, he only ever came to see us once. And he he praised the other two and said I was lucky to be in the group. So uh, that's that's how that's how bad relations got between us in the end. Um, so so yes, yeah, so I went to the local college, uh, which did me a whole load of good. And then when I went to the University of Birmingham, I discovered multiculturalism. I mean, I didn't know I didn't know any 
people of other ethnicities. There weren't any down in Somerset, and there hadn't been any at school back, back in the day. Um, and I discovered, I discovered the working class, as I used to refer to them, you know, and <laughs> people of other ethnicity. And it it really was the making of me. It uh, yeah, it it made me <laughs> more human, in fact. And um, uh, and why was that? What was the what was the reason? It was just just simply experiencing um, difference, or yes, was it, I, well, because I'd never react? I'd never been exposed to it, and I suppose you can go one way or the other. You can be horrified by it and want to retreat back into your little castle on the hill, uh, but that wasn't an option for me anyway. So so or you embrace it, um, which I did, and uh, then you discover that all the things. I have a relative who lives in Lincolnshire and he thinks that London is, is, a, is a wild and dangerous place because you're just not, not exposed to it. If you, if, if, if you, if you don't experience, learn to experience, learn to live in it or learn to mix with people of other, other, other countries and uh, other values even, uh, you live a very sheltered life. And I did, I knew I didn't want to do that. And of course, it's impossible in the theatre anyway, if you wouldn't want to. You said there's the two ways of, of pe- that people can respond to being plunged into that sort of world of difference and world of diversity. And one is to, you know, shun it and one is to embrace it. And then you said that the reason you embrace braced it was because you couldn't shun it because you had nowhere else to go but that's not the whole <laughs> story there is it there's something else that motivated you surely to embrace it then you must have thought other things about it it sounds like you valued the experiences the diversity of experiences that it put in front of you well by this time what remind remember when i went to university it was to study drama and so we were supposed to be opening ourselves up to all sorts of new experiences and um uh i was there right at the end of the 60s and I belonged to uh, it was almost a cult within the department we were called the theatre of man and the man who founded it Clive Barker not the horror writer uh, he actually wrote a a book on the back of the experiences of the of this um, year we were very um, insulated actually for that year didn't really get going uh, my opening out to the world until the second year, because in the first year we were we were very isolated. Uh, for first start, the department was in the basement, so in the winter you never saw uh, actual sunlight because we had to be there at nine o'clock in the morning, and we were doing an hour's physical workout, and then we had lectures all day, and then we were we were improvising and opening ourselves up to new experiences, culminating at the end of the year in a in a sort of happening where we all had actually had to strip naked and run around throwing buckets of gunk over each other. So <laughs> that's the sort of thing you did back then. Yeah, I think he'd be carted off now. And all for free. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then the second year I moved to um, into a flat uh, in Balsall Heath, which is the... Oh, yes, I know it. Yes, well, it's a Pakistani area. And um, also, tangentially, uh, the Red Light District. So, uh, yes, I sort of met all sorts of people there. And um, and uh, when I let, transitioned later after, after university, uh, I was still living there and it was an ideal place to be. And so well, by the time I came down to London, I'd seen all that, you know, like I'd got used to being curb crawled and all, all sorts of things. Um, and I had I'd had a, a lovely um, 
Pakistani weightlifter as my boyfriend for a bit. Uh, so I was really, I was really living, living, living life. <laughs> so uh, I think I've heard Borsal Heath described as a sort of proving ground for London before. Remember, I moved down to Stratford, uh, which was an equal a, a hellhole in those days. I mean, it's, it's much better now, but it was really quite, you know, a bit of a shit tip if I'm allowed to say that when I first arrived here. But yes, yeah, got a lot better since then. I want to come back to your stepmother. Yes. Um, who you said you, yourself that you wanted to, to speak more about. And I heard your um, wonderfully moving keynote uh, talk to our celebrant conference just a few years ago when you talked about um, the women in your life and how important uh, women had been and influential in really the course that your life had taken. And I think um, your stepmother was one of those very important people. So uh, perhaps you'd say a little bit about how she shaped your, your life and by implication, you know your own beliefs and what came afterwards. Yes, absolutely. And I was very lucky to get her because my father, when my father left my birth mother, who, by the way, was a very bad influence on my life. She was an abusive mother, uh, uh, not only physically, but she was emotionally very, very cruel. So he was right to remove us from that environment. And then he married a very nice lady. Um, But unfortunately, she was... Uh, she was ill for quite a long time. I didn't see much of it because I was away at boarding school. And she died and he married her sister, who is the stepmother of, of whom I now speak. And uh, Kathy was her name. And she was, uh, well, we actually based, fascinating idea, back, uh, wrote a song based on her, really. It was called The One True Religion Is Me. And we coined the term um, pick and mix religionist. Uh, and she was very much like that. She did believe in God, but she also uh, would go to a spiritualist church occasionally. She believed in reincarnation, but she also uh, moved to Glastonbury to live on the ley lines and had a Native American spirit guide while she was there. And, <laughs> and she, she also went to visit Sai Baba in on his ashram. Uh, Sai Baba was supposed to be an, um, an avatar, a manifestation of the Godhead on earth, whatever that means. Uh, and he had an ashram and he had a huge following and all sorts of celebrities used to follow him. And uh, as is the way with so many of these people, in the end, he was uh, unmasked as having had uh, sexual relations with some of his uh, followers and inappropriately, and you know, uh, and their children, and it was all it was all pretty ghastly. But luckily, that was after she had died; it would have broken her heart, I think, if if she'd known about that. So she went not once, but she went twice to um, to visit. She never actually got to meet him. She saw him walking you know, through the crowds as they all sat across late. And uh, she, and when she was dying of cancer, she um, had a healer that used to come and visit her, who, I don't know how these things work, but she believed in this woman. And, and indeed, she didn't have a moment's pain until actually on the day she died, when suddenly the pain kicked in. So uh, she had, she she believed in things that suited her, basically. But she always believed in the universal truth, which is we should we should love one another and we should treat each other as we would like to be treated. And so she saw no problems with my 
being whatever I wanted to be, you know, gay uh, or or trans, because uh, she loved me as a person, and she loved me as as her own child. And it was uh, it was I don't know what what would have happened really if I if she hadn't been there to to fight my corner when my father went ballistic. Um, uh, my life might have been very different. And so she was a source of great comfort. And also to my um, my gay friends. I had I had um, two, f- two friends I took down there who neither of them had come out to their parents. They were, they were afraid to do so. And she was being very encouraging them to sit uh, and telling them, you know, well, surely they're going to love you, whatever. She, she, was, she could be slightly naive in that way. But that's what she believed. And it was... Uh, I just yes. a- absolutely adored her, and she. But she basically taught me that you don't have to go to church, you don't have to follow rules, but you just have to be kind to people, and, that, and I think that is a universal truth. You don't have to be a humanist even to to know that. Um, sure, but she, you know, she 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 wouldn't have wanted any a religion to tell her how she should live her life i mean for instance uh um she you know she she liked she liked to drink and um and she was very fond of she was very fond of 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 sex she thought sex was a very good thing in life and uh, i couldn't agree more really i've i've, I've taken both of them, both of those from her but it showed me another way another way of going through life that didn't depend on following a strict religion that had rules and regulations, and if you didn't follow them, you were a very, very bad person and you were going to go to hell. And she was obviously a very important role model in your life. She was indeed. And she was also very glamorous as well, which I, which I liked. Uh, in fact, she was, uh, the, day, the day before she died, she got me you know, to put her makeup on and do her hair. And it was, yes, appearance was important to her. Not, not fanatically so, but uh, yes, she liked she liked to look nice and make the most of uh, what she had, and she had a very eclectic style of of uh, of, of dressing. For a long time, she dressed in miniskirts right until the time she was in her fifties, and then she, I think, as the Indian influence came in more, she she took to wearing long flowing robes, uh, which I always found lovely as well. Oh, <laughs> A bit like those beautiful cassocks of, of, of previous Well, yes, of days. course. That's what I should have said, really, at the time. <laughs> it, was, it was the nearest thing I could get to wearing a dress, you know, to wear a cassock. Um, there were other very strong uh, women role models in your life to come, weren't there? Of course. Uh, uh, when I joined Fascinating Aida, Dilly Keane, of whom I can never speak too highly because she gave me the career that I have today, and she encouraged my songwriting. I was really, uh, I had done a bit of, uh, I tried to write songs in the past and I'd done it by copying, well, using Cole Porter as a template. I don't think you can go bad wrong with Cole Porter, really, can you? So I, I, uh, from him, I understood the, the, uh, the importance of rhyme and of structure. And so I would rewrite I would write, I would think of his tune and I would write 
songs to that rhythm, but I wouldn't tell anybody what the tune was because I couldn't write the tunes myself and then I would get somebody else to write the tune, but they didn't know what the original song was. So when I first joined Fascinating Ideas, they were working very hard. Uh, they were doing um, Stop the Week, uh, where you would get a topic on a Thursday and then you would um, have to come up with a song in the afternoon and record it on the Friday. And I, you know, I learnt from... Dilly, how to do the uh, you know how to how to really get knuckle down. She can write songs perfectly well without me, but she she was very kindly <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> took, took me onto the team, and we have written some wonderful stuff together. And I'm very proud of my contribution to that. But I'm I ne- but but I'm harking back to what I said about my musicianship. I'm a definitely a a collaborator, not an instigator. I think I can count on the fingers of of one hand the, the number of times that I came up with the topic for whatever we write about. So she's the ideas woman, and then we we would sit down together and write it. But now um, Liza Pullman, who's uh, been with us for 15 years, she also contributes to the writing, which is great. But the thing about Dilly is that she, I saw her go on a massive journey where I was concerned, because when I auditioned for the group, I was asked by the director, there's no way to, because when she heard me sing, she said, there's no no way to uh, put this uh, easily, Adele. Are you a man or a woman? And I answered truthfully, as far as I was concerned, I'm a woman, because I felt that she'd asked me the wrong question. If she'd asked me, did you used to be a man? Well, even that would be the wrong question because I've always, I've always maintained I never was a man. I was a, I was a boy. I was a baby. Then I was a boy, and then I was a youth, and then, and then I never really reached manhood. <laughs> I, I fast forwarded to womanhood. Um, so I felt that was fine. And then when I actually got, because I thought I ought to be able to get this job on my own merits. I can either sing or I can't. And you either like what I do or you don't. So I thought, well, I won't say anything about it. And to be honest, at that time, I wasn't out, really, because uh, there were still very few trans people around and certainly no, no... Well, we're talking here, aren't we, about the early 1980s? Yes, indeed. And so I just thought, yes, I, I will just... Um, just see how it goes. And then I got the job. And so then I was saying to my friends, oh, well, do you think I ought to say, well, no, they said you got it on your own merits. You should, you should just uh, just go with it. Well, of course, that was naive because um, pretty soon the press came sniffing around. And so we actually, uh, I did sort of vaguely get outed in the press. And I have to say that Dilly was... Well, she'd never come across. She she had gay friends, but she'd never met anybody trans before. And um, I think she was she was put out quite rightly. I say that I hadn't been what she uh, uh, deemed to be honest with me. And I said, "Well, would you have made a different decision?" And she said, "Well, to be honest, I don't know." But anyway, uh, there were people asking, telling her that she she should sack me. And find somebody else, and she went. No, she is the best man for the job, as they say. (laughs) And she has been a staunch ally uh, ever since. 
and you know we we've we've been together for longer than most people are are married uh, in a professional way and um yes we've you know we've had our ups and downs and stuff but she has always uh, fought my corner and um her own family i think uh, were i think not horrified but sort of shocked because it was just it was a new thing nobody had ever come across it before and she was always uh, uh she was always very very patient and and when people would say things like oh which one of you is the drag queen i'm not saying members of her family said that but you know members of the public would say that she'd go <laughs> she'd go oh it's me yes i used to play rugby at trinity and <laughs> and which i just thought was the most fantastic thing and then i think uh, and then a f- uh Years ago, she came up with the idea. She said, "Oh, we you ought to we ought to write a song about your 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 transness." I've got a fabulous title for it. It's called "Prisoner of Gen- Gender," which I thought was a great title, of course. And I That's said, a "Great title." And I said, "No." I said, "No, no, 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 I, no, no," because what basically were the, the uh, when I was first outed, the the tack that we took was, "Yes, it's true." But it doesn't make any difference. You know, she's uh, a Delta woman now and she's a member of the three woman group and that's the end of it. So bugger off. But then, uh, then years later, when uh, Diddy said, well, no, I think we ought to dress tonight. Well, I said, no, no, no. And then it was a few years back now when all that business kicked off in Chechnya, when gays were being rounded up and tortured and killed. And she said, I think it's time for this song, Adele. And um, and so we did. We did eventually write it, and it got a wonderful reception. And there were there we discovered, of course, there were lots of fans. Festival. I didn't have a clue that I was was trans, but they they took it on board and they embraced it. And so we we sang that for a while for a couple of tours, I think. And then something more interesting happened to me because I got cancer. And so we we wrote a song about my having cancer, so I sang that. But then <laughs> trans was out, cancer tra- was in. Cancer was in. <laughs> but then after the, after I got over the cancer, all this business kicked off with trans rights. So it's now well, ba- it's I, now I back we in. Might talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's now. Yeah, back I in. mean because it it is it is it's it, is it the song? Yes, the song's back in the show. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's that's interesting. So I mean, it's it's obviously. I don't want to talk too much about, you know, external debates and what's going on in society and so on, because this is ultimately a conversation about what you believe, um, your thoughts and opinions. But I think that you must have thoughts and opinions on that, um, on that phenomenon. It's interesting when you say that, uh, you know, 40 years ago, this was not a widely talked about issue. And people were transitioning, people, you know, maybe people had seen Jan Morris on the television or, or, or whatever I think that's the mm. that, that's the trans person my grandmother always knew of you know um and but now it's on everybody's lips uh, for um lots of different reasons sometimes as a proxy for lots of other discussions and, uh, and conflicts um how do you I mean it's be interesting to me how that in light of that, what your own beliefs about sex and gender and this uh, question are in light of your experience. But I also wonder what you, if you have any reflections on the way that those debates are raging in society and how that's affected your view of these things too. 
Yes, well, God, this is a minefield you're asking me to step it's a into big one. now. <laughs> um, <laughs> my first, uh, it's interesting you say that um, Jan Morris was for your grandmother because my first experience of transness was April Ashley, um, who I remember very vividly. I was at university and um, I had, uh, I was in a hospital because I'd taken an overdose. It wasn't really a, I didn't intend to kill myself. I was far too vain for that, but it was sort of, I was just so confused about things and I just needed time out and, you know, that was it. So I went and told somebody quite quickly. But uh, I remember waking up the, the next day after I'd been pumped, uh, pumped out and um, it was all over the front pages, April Ashley's divorce case. And I remember looking at her and thinking, it is possible, you see, Dad, it is possible. Um, of course, that had huge ramifications for uh, trans people for many, many years to come, because up until then, people had been oh, yeah. quietly yeah. getting on with it. Well, actually, there hadn't been, yeah. any, I think before her, there was the Honourable Roberta Cowell, but she was a member of the aristocracy, and the aristocracy could, could do anything, really. Um, I think part of April's Problem. The reason why they turned against her was because she'd membered, married a member of the English aristocracy, but she came from the slums of Liverpool, and they they didn't like that. So uh, rather rather like it's the, always about something else, isn't it? it? Is. This, this debate quite often yes. it's always a proxy. But for something rather else. like Christine Keeler and Mandy Rice Davis, you know, again it was the establishment against these two working class girls. But anyway, so I remember eight, April. Um, but in these, but I was encouraged by. The hospital by Charing Cross Hospital and the dreadful Dr. Randall, who actually testified against April Ashley, to live a life of stealth. Basically, that's what it was called. You had to pass so convincingly that nobody would ever question that you'd been any other gender. And that was, in his eyes, that was what made you a success. And if you could do that, then you would get the surgery. So, so that's what we were encouraged to do. And... Um, and also because you felt that if you if you uh, did come out to people, they they uh, would reject you, and indeed many of them did. I mean, none of my friends did, but a lot of, as we know, up until this day, a lot of people would. And April Ashley, in her in her autobiography, said even when she was she was honoured by the city of Liverpool, and she had a whole exhibition to um, it, uh, to celebrate her life. Her one and only remaining brother was there, and uh, still completely ignored her. Won't have anything. To, wouldn't have anything to do with her at, at all. But uh, anyway, so come fast forwarding to today, there seems to be still uh, two ways of looking at it. I don't think the general public are that fussed, to be honest. They love Darnit International. They love. Uh, Conchita Verse, although Conchita Verse isn't really trans, is is is, is more of a perform. It's more of a performance. They love Nadia on Big Brother. Elliot Page, as he is now, has just announced he's he's transitioned. And I don't think people really, as I say, are that bothered. Uh, but the it seems to be that there are other people. Uh, I think the problem has been all this business about invading women's spaces and the toilet debate. I don't understand this, the toilet debate, because if you want to go into a woman's toilet and molest women, 
you do not have to dress as a woman in order to do so. You merely get a job as a as a cleaner. Every time I go into the into a public ladies' loo, there's a male cleaner in there. Or you don't even have to do that. You just have to go in and hide in the cubicle. I mean, it's it is absolutely ridiculous to think that that uh, that men are <laughs> if are deliberately going to get get dressed up um, and uh, in order to go in uh, invade women's spaces and and molest them. There have been one or two bad apples there was you know there's been karen white who uh was a, was a prisoner who demanded to be transferred to a women's prison and then assaulted uh women there but let's not forget she was a criminal to start with she was already in prison so um i i find this very hard but on the other hand i equally find it hard that trans women uh, it's really the trans women who are doing this have you know as Michelle Barmer says when they go low we go high unfortunately they haven't gone high they've gone even lower and to to actually physically threaten uh, other women uh, through right. social media they really then play into the hands of the women who say there we are you see this is the male aggression that's coming out and this is what we're fighting against the problem is that the Gender Recognition Act, <clears throat> as it was work, wasn't really working as it was for trans people. If you wanted to get a gender recognition certificate, you have to apply to this council um, and you have to provide proof of that you're living as a woman. And yes. they, they, de- they decide and you never you never meet them. You don't know who they are. And if they write back and say, <clears throat> we need more proof. Okay, you might be able to fall, but if they write back and say, no, we don't believe your chance, you have, there is no appeal. And that's the end of it. So then you're, then you're scuppered after that. What's your reflection then on all of this ultimately? I mean, we spoke a moment ago about how some of this noise is a proxy for other things. Um, what's, what's your opinion about it? Does it relate, the, the situation now, does it relate to anything that you yourself experienced in the last 40 years or so is it a co- continuation of you know existing trends and, and thoughts out in society or is it something completely new well no i think it's i think it's new because i um i used to be involved in gay politics until i got expelled from gay liberation for for becoming coming out as trans that's how that how that's how it went back in the day. <laughs> I have, I think, only once in my life ever met uh, a gay woman who was offended by my existence. One, and I've met many, many others who are not, uh, and I've met many uh, women who are not. I've I've really hardly ever met anybody that is is offended by my but but they basically this argument is saying a that we don't have the right to determine what to do with our own bodies because it offends other people and b really we sh- we shouldn't uh, uh, it's all makey uppy and um we're we're just pretending and it's uh, uh, you know uh, uh, and it's, uh, it's it's all it's all just an excuse to as i say to to invade other spaces and it's always people who are not really well in the main 
it's people who are not trans who are making these decisions and deciding what we should and what we shouldn't do. Now, I'm very, very uh, worried about this, this latest thing that's happened with the Tavistock Clinic, that somebody who said, well, she's now ident- back identifying as, as female. The judgment is that nobody under the age of 16 should be given puberty blockers because they don't know the long-term effects. Well, that, that's useless because everybody's pubescent by the age of 16. It's too late by then. And now they're saying also that they can't be given any treatment without a court order until they're 18. I mean, the whole thing is is dis- is absolutely disastrous. These poor kids, uh, what kind of ho- what kind of life stretches ahead of them if they're being told all the time, no, 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 what you're feeling is not what you're feeling. You're not, you're not, uh, you don't know your own feelings and th- your feelings are going to change. And they don't change. I know that teenagehood can be a difficult time and people do have body issues. And I think particularly teenage girls have have hang-ups about their body, but so do teenage boys now. And But I don't believe that any medical professional would willingly push people into having treatment that they didn't want or that their parents didn't want, because I think the parents would be involved in, you know, in the situation. And now they've they've just pulled the rug out from all of them. So I really worry about what is for the future of young trans people now. I really do. And it's I find it very, very upsetting. From your own point of view, you spoke about the, the frustration you felt as a child and the distress you felt um, later. Um, at the point of, of, of transitioning, like you said earlier, the, the cherry on the cake that was coming and that you were working hard yeah. to achieve, was that the moment when all this was resolved for you? Was there a feeling of resolution? Absolutely, yes. Once I got there, all my anger disappeared. It was amazing. If I find it very, very, very hard to get angry about anything. Now, I'm very laid back about life. And, um, of course, I've you know I've had my heart broken. It's not like I don't have any feelings at all. And I can get very emotional about that. But actually, this terrible kind of screaming frustration, it yes, it all just disappeared. And I, I became a much calmer person. And interestingly enough... That friend who who um, told me I couldn't go go on saying I was I was an actress when I was a civil servant. He um, he was my best friend at university, and he'd seen me through the whole thing with um, uh, with my overdose. And then uh, after I had the overdose, of course, I was so traumatized by the whole thing. I actually referred myself for electric shock treatment. So for a year, I had electric shock treatment of turn me straight um i can't blame that on anybody else because i put myself forward for it um but all it did really was just it just killed everything inside me it just sort of neutered me um so that he saw me through that stage then he saw me when i came out and then we lost contact for a, a few years uh and he said and when i heard that you were transitioning i thought oh god this is yet another layer that you've put on and now I see that actually all those other things were like one mask on top of another and now you've taken them all off and here you are this is the real you so he knew me better than anybody apart from that personal feeling of resolution and transformation and um achievement and you know 
completion, I suppose. Um, does, has it left you with any um, changed beliefs about sex and gender and, and, and the nature of those things? Or is it that's beside the point for you? It was very personal. Well, it was very personal for me. I'm having to get to know what non-binary gender is. I've, I'm still sort of coming to terms with that. I mean, it's always been around. There was a, uh, I knew all the wonderful uh, radical fairies that lived in Brixton uh, and the, like the fabulous Betty Bourne. And I, for one, for a few months, actually uh, tried out being a radical queen. I tried out everything. Once I decided that being gay wasn't really for me, I, you know, just being a gay man, I thought, oh, well. So then I tried being a drag queen, and that wasn't for me. And then I tried being a radical queen, which is where you, you don't, well, I suppose you just wear a dress like Harry Styles, really. And, and but you go, but you walk around in public. You don't just pose for magazine covers, and and <laughs> you, and you 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 know you have to get on the bus. And and I got really got quite aggressive then. You know, if people looked at me in my with my uh with my eyeliner and my and my uh, my dress on, and I'd say yes. You've got a pop. You know. What are you looking at? We've got a problem with that. I was really quite quite aggressive about it. And I didn't like that quality in myself at all. Um, so I, and then I tried um, being the lover of a trans woman. And even that w- wasn't enough. In the end, you know, I had, I, I couldn't really sort of put it off any longer. And I've, I was still only 21 when I made the decision. So I'm glad that I came to that decision quite quickly and didn't go down another another path and put it suppress it for another 20 or 30 years and really screw everything up i'm i'm on record in a book somebody said to me asked me a question in an interview do you think that trans people will ever have the right to get married i think we'd been talking about april ashley and i went oh no i don't think so because if they gave us the right they'd have to give gay people the right to get married and they'll never do that i said said, (laughs) that's how it seemed to me at the time, I'm always a bit of a pragmatist, you know. I I just think, well, that's that's how it is. And then somebody shows you that there's a little chink. No, you could get, you know, you you could you could push the envelope. It is a kind of a brave new world now, and I think people are just confused. That's the trouble. As I say, people who don't know anything about, uh, who've never uh, mixed with people of other ethnicities. Found it find it very frightening if they, they used to find it very frightening if they if somebody moved in next door to them and I think most of the people who are banging on about this now uh, who've jumped on the bandwagon they've just been swept up in it. That was Adele Anderson telling us more about her life and her outlook on the world as a humanist for the What I Believe podcast. What I Believe is a podcast from Humanist UK and this was the eighth episode of the second season. We'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday. If you'd like to support the podcast, find out more about the Humanist Approach to Life, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider joining as a member. To learn more about humanism, you can also purchase the Sunday Times bestseller, The Little Book of Humanism, available at all good bookshops.